I had the text there printed for you in your bulletin insert with the outline. However, be sure to have your Bibles ready as we will look at two longer passages later on in the sermon. Uh, as we begin a new chapter of this great letter from Paul to the new churches at Colossae, uh, let us remember that the focus is still the same. You'll see it soon. Uh, this epistle is structured much like uh, most of Paul's epistles where he begins the book with uh, deep doctrine and steeps us in our position in Christ and who Christ is, what he has done. Very common in Pauline uh, letters. Then he spends the second portion of the epistle applying that deep reality <clears throat> to our lives. It's not devoid of doctrine, that's for sure. We'll see that immediately. But it now begins to really give us ways in which uh, our lives will look different as a result of these great truths that he has just taught us. Chapter 2 ends up uh, by encouraging us to live in light of our new identity. We have, been, we have died to religion and legalism and worldliness in Christ. We're alive now to Christ. We must therefore live like the one who we are now identified with. Hear God's holy word, Colossians 3, 1 through 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Let us pray. <clears throat> Lord, thank you for your holy word. Thank, I thank you how... You have given it to us as a timeless, constant teacher of truth. Lord, I pray that our lives would reflect what it teaches. I pray, Lord, that I would be accurate according to your word, that only that which is according to your word would stick in the minds and hearts of my brothers and sisters here gathered, and that anything that I might say that is not in accordance with your holy word, that it would fall from our ears. And Lord, I pray that the glory of Jesus would be had. In Jesus' name, amen. I recently changed wireless phone plans, and so my old phone was immediately useless. Still worked, but useless now. I had to get a different one that went with this plan. So I gave my old phone to my oldest son. It still has a little camera, take pictures on it. Can't send them anywhere, but he can take little pictures, listen to little tunes, charge it up, lights up. Connected to nothing, though. Doesn't go anywhere. Doesn't tap into any network and just itself. It's stuck with itself. My other phone, however, now, although similar in functionality individually, it plugs into a network, a wide network, where I could talk to anyone anywhere. And after 7 o'clock for free, no less. It's useful. Because it's not on of, its, of itself anymore. It's connected. It's wired to something bigger and better. And it's able to be used for its intended purpose now. Well, for you, brother, you, sister, in Christ, you have a new life. It's not that you were without worth before you were because you were created in the image of God. But you're of yourself. You're stuck in yourself and very, very limited. But when you die to self and live to Christ, as God transfers you, now you are tapped in to his eternal scheme, his eternal outworking, the glory of God. The potential is really unlimited as you think of what you have been tapped into now, that you have a new life. You are a new person. You have a new perspective. You have new ambitions. You have a new future. 
Now, maybe you're a new believer. Maybe you're an old believer who's struggling, who has a tension in their life, constantly pulling in your heart. You want to do this, but you know God wants you to do that. And I would tell you that is totally normal, and that has to do with that old man inside of us who's dead, rearing up again, working up against what we know our new priorities, our new life, our new perspective, our new ambition, our new future, what it teaches us. And that struggle is common to every believer. And it's consistent throughout our life here on earth. But your relationship makes you a new person. And as you come to grips and understand and gather this perspective, it will help you to understand the struggle that you are undergoing. It will help you to advance in that struggle when you realize who you are. And first of all, you're dead to self now. You are dead to yourself and made alive to Christ. It changes everything. Nothing is the same as a result. I just wish someone would have told me that earlier. I remember becoming a believer and not understanding why all these things that I did before bothered me so much, yet I couldn't seem to stop them. And when I did stop them, I wasn't any happier because I didn't know how to live. And it was a long time before someone explained to me, well, the reason why is you're totally new. Well, I don't feel new. I wasn't raised bad. What do you mean? I'm new? What's so new? Well, your whole perspective, your ambitions now, you as a person, you're different. Paul now, speaking to the Colossians, after giving all this doctrinal underpinning, all this picture of who Christ is and what he has done, now says, brothers and sisters, because you're united to this Christ, who I've just spoken of, your life's different. The way you look at things are different. Your ambitions are different. Your future is different. Now live like it. You're a new person. Look at the text with me. It says, first of all, that you've been raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above. Seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth, for you have died. Now first, recognize this important fact of self-death upon conversion. And this is important. You know, when we think of our new life in Christ, we often think of having new life, or we are born again, or we are alive. We are now in Christ. And we think of the life aspect that is now ours in Christ. Praise God for this. But at the same time that we are made alive to Christ, we are also made dead to self. So the death of ourselves has to be understood and acknowledged as we go forward with life in Christ. Because the old self will constantly hinder your devotion to the priorities of Jesus. And so you've got to know the old self is dead and dying and rotting. Turn away from it and unto Christ ultimately and and altogether with your whole heart, all your affections. Dead to self, alive to Christ. Galatians 2.20 Paul, writing in one of his earliest epistles to these believers, says, It is no longer I who live, that is, I'm dead, but Christ who lives in me. Colossians 2.12, before we've come to this text, having been buried with Jesus, being buried with him in baptism. That refers to when he was dead and buried. Colossians 2.20, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, that is, you died in your love and affection and devotion to the world, dies with it. And now Colossians 3, verse 3, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. In fact, Jesus did not hide this at all from those who sought to follow him. In Luke chapter 9, he says to his followers, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. What is he really saying? Deny yourself, take up the cross. Where did the cross lead? To death. You've got to die to self. Whoever loses his life for my sake will actually save it. Dying to self means living to Christ. 
What does it mean to be dead to self? That I am no longer my own. My old self was a worshiper of myself. My old self had one king, me. I was the Lord of my life. I was the one I lived to please. Now in Christ, I am dead to myself. I am no longer the center of my universe. Christ is the center now. Now evidence of death to self occurs when we become now more and more concerned with God's glory and the good of others rather than ourselves. And this for most of us is a slow process. And it's a shocking process. I don't like it. Because I like to worship myself. I, just, I, I really like to please myself. And the idea that I now do things for God's glory and for other people, which brings glory to God, immediately it, it wars against me, what's in me. But what happens over time is that God starts to replace those old affections with new affections. It's not that it becomes natural completely in this life, but the conviction level when we're acting out of selfish motives begins to rise and we start feeling the tension and the struggle and we recognize that this death to self, while it's done at a pointed particular time, has a way of, of, of living itself out in our life, this death to the old man that is painful in the process, but starts moving and changing the way we act because now we're thinking in terms of how would this benefit the glory of God who saved me as opposed to how will this make me feel better? How will this serve me? How will this go well for me? How will I do what makes me happy? And as this transition goes, we recognize what death to self really means. And then, gloriously, what it means to be alive then with Christ. Look at the text again in verse 1. If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Raised means, yes, you're dead to self, but you are raised with Christ. You're alive. Earlier in the book of Colossians, it says... You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. Now, the Bible says it in several ways. Alive to Christ, alive with Christ, alive in Christ. In, with, by, through Christ. All Christ. Paul, writing in his twin epistle to Colossians, looks very similar to the book uh, that he writes here in Colossians. He writes to the Ephesians. He says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And then we have our text before us in verse 1 of chapter 3. You've been raised with Christ. Then verse 4, when Christ who is your life. So yes, I'm dead to Tony, but I'm alive to Jesus. Total different way of looking at the world. And if you're not looking at it this way and you're truly one of his children, I'm guessing there's a struggle going on in your, in your life right now. Something's an upheaval. Something's not sitting right with you. Because you're not living to be who you are. Life in Christ. Hidden in Christ. It's important to understand what happened at the cross in particular. He cites this in the first two chapters, but remember once again what happened at the cross when it refers to being raised with Christ. God placed on Jesus all the sins of all his people. So Jesus takes the sins of his people, but more than that, uh, he brings himself into union with his people, and we, in essence, are crucified with Christ, as it says. And God, looking at Christ's righteousness, accepts his payment for all those who are united to Christ, us, who trusted in him by his grace. And as we are crucified with Christ, we're united with him, God says that that sacrifice is worthy, Jesus is perfect, I'll take that, and I'll accept you who are united to Christ. 
Galatians 2.20 says, I've been crucified with Christ. Colossians 2.12 says, I've been buried with Christ in baptism. Colossians 3.1 says, I've been raised with Christ. In this light, Colossians 3.4 makes total sense then. Christ is my life. Crucified, buried, and raised with Christ. My life is Christ. Perhaps you've heard someone say, my children are my life. This is just this week, the coach of the Steelers uh, resigned, retired, probably resigned for a little while. At any rate, 15 years of coaching, he said, football is, has been my life. What does he mean? He means all other priorities fell underneath what it took to be a coach in the NFL. When someone says, this is my life, they simply mean it dominates their life. Uh, my children are my life means everything I do has to do with my children. It's answerable to my children somehow. My job is my life. People say that. You hear them say it. Uh, this is my life. Or when I was a student, Greek was my life for two years. That's all I knew. I was a Greek geek, as they say. Because that priority took precedent over all other priorities. Well, what this says to us, brothers and sisters, that rightfully, Christ is your life. So all other priorities must report to that priority, Christ, your life. Not Christ as a segment of your life. Christ is your life, the apex, the top of it, and everything falls out underneath his lordship. Not as one of the components of my life, but my life. Christ, your life. Now, in light of this, notice what verse 1 says in verse 2, using the same phrase, and it's a verse that is cited often, seek things above, in verse 1. Verse 2, set your minds on things above. Notice what's being said here. To seek things that are above it refers to action or ambition, things that you do. To set your mind on things above has to do with your perspective, your mindset, your worldview. So your worldview fuels your actions. So how you set your mind, that's how you will act. And your actions, if given to habits that are wrong long enough, they can influence your mindset. And so they work together, not one or the other. Set your mind on things above has to do with mindset. Seek things that are above has to do with your actions that live out from your mindset. Now, I would like to suggest to you that this verse, uh, Colossians 3, 1 and verse 2, have been used in many ways, at least I know personally in my own life. One is it's kind of for escapism. Do you know what I'm saying? Like things are really tough in your life. There's a trial going on. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. So you kind of escape whatever trial you're undergoing. You know, because how can we know what's above, right? So, but just set your mind somewhere else. Don't think about it almost. Maybe you've heard of that kind of application before. Secondly is conviction. I've heard it for conviction. You're striving after worldly things too much. You must set your mind on things above. Quit going after all that worldly stuff that fades. Set your mind on things above. Be heavenly minded. Now, I am not for a moment saying that there's no truth whatsoever to those applications. But I will say that the best application is really very active in its intentions by the Apostle Paul. Not for us to have our nose piously in the air thinking of heavenly things all the time and ignoring earthly reality. Rather, it's a call to action here. And the way we understand what the call to action is, is to have a new perspective. And you have a new perspective. And the new perspective has to do with the, verse, the words that are often passed over and just not considered. We concentrate on seeking things that are above in verse 1, setting your mind on things above in verse 2. But notice what comes between. I believe that defines for us what it means to set our minds on things above. Things above are not defined. What does that mean to tell you to set your mind on? But if they are defined, particular things you should be setting your mind to and your actions to, then it becomes different. And I would suggest to you the key to understanding this verse correctly 
comes with where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Take that out for a moment and let's consider what it means. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. That's above. That's what define, is defined of as, as above. Therefore, we have to set our mind on Christ seated at the right hand of God for us to understand how to live today, how to have the right perspective and the right actions. Now, hang on with me as we consider this. It's important. It's crucial. It's just not enough to just simply tell you, brother, whatever you're dealing with right today, just set your mind on things above. Or, brother, you're striving after things too hardly. You've got to stop going after worldly things. Set your mind on things above. I want to pull back from that kind of application and say, what is really being said here? We are to set our minds on things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Now, first of all, the phrase to sit at the right hand of God is unique uh, to Christ in its ultimate sense, but not unique to the way things happened in antiquity. In other words, a king could, and we could think of a, at least one case in the Bible, where you have the king or a pharaoh taking Joseph and giving him basically equal power with himself. He's his right-hand man. But the phrase to sit at my right hand simply means that I will give you a place of honor with myself. In fact, I'll place you at my right hand, and most people are right-handed, right? Well, that means that that person who's sitting at your right hand has the power to stop your hand, if you're the ruler, from lifting the scepter to rule or the sword to strike. That person has equality with the one who's sitting on the throne. So God places Jesus at his right hand, a position of honor and equality. So that's where Jesus is, at God's right hand. Important. The Old Testament speaks of this for the coming Messiah. In Psalm 80, which is speaking about the kingship of Israel, which is ultimately a picture of King Jesus, Messiah, the perfect king, says this in Psalm 80, verse 17 and 18. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. Uh, the one who sits at the right hand of God gives life, is what is being said here. Turn to Psalm 110. I believe it's the most important psalm in the Bible, and that's a big statement because there are a lot of important ones. The reason why I say it is because the New Testament authors refer to Psalm 110 more than any other psalm. Psalm 110 also gives us a picture of what Messiah would do at God's right hand. This is important when we're seeking to answer the question, what are we supposed to set our minds on? Things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand? Well, where is Christ? What does it mean to be seated at God's right hand? What is he doing? Psalm 110 begins to answer this question. It says, the Lord says to my Lord. So you have two equal members speaking, one speaking to the other. God the Father speaking to God the Son. God the Son. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your mouth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment upon the nation, among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook of the, by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. So this is a picture of, G, of God the Father placing God the Son at his right hand to do what? Just sit there? No, to rule from there. And immediately, not after a 2,000-year lag, immediately sit at my right hand, and I will make, God says, the nations a footstool. 
footstool, what? A servant to him. Subservient to the king, Christ. This is important. So now we're setting our minds on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. Well, what is he doing? He's ruling, among other things. Ephesians 1, just listen to this verse, 19 and following. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. It doesn't stop there. Far above all rule and authority and, and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but the one to come, he's saying in the first century, book of Ephesians. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. All things and then primacy and particularity to the church. Christ is not just sitting at the right hand of the Father waiting for heaven. He's ruling from the right hand of the Father. That's what we're setting our minds on. That's what's above. Christ working in this miraculous, amazing, powerful way. But there's more. Peter says in the book of Acts, remember Peter? Peter the wuss? Listen to what he says. With the apostles, he answers, we must obey God rather than men, he says to the crowds. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you all killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Hey, we're, we're bold right now because we think Christ is now sitting at the right hand of God. You think you killed him and left him, but he rose and he's seated at the highest place of all places. And he's the one we serve no matter what you tell us. Set your mind on things above has to do with the priority of Christ now, and that's ruling over this world, subduing people to himself. Doesn't stop there. Book of Hebrews. Turn to Hebrews chapter 1. I'm sure most of you remember exactly what we said when we came through Hebrews two years ago on this verse. I didn't either, so I had to go back and look. But at any rate, Hebrews 1, verse 1 and following, at least not the particulars might be clear to you, but look at this now in this light. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of, of God, remember. Verse 1 of Hebrews 1, one of my favorite verses. It begins, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Diverse times and diverse manners is still a better translation. Verse 2, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds, notice this present tense, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as a name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you, or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. He doesn't say that to any of the angels, does he? Then look down to verse 8. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And notice the quote. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Jesus did not go to heaven 
to sit at the right hand of the Father and just wait until the saints got there. He was placed at the right hand of the Father to rule, to subdue, to bring honor to God, to work in us and to build his church as a corollary with all this. 2,000 years ago, God fulfilled the prophecy of Psalm 110 by putting Christ at his right hand. And unfortunately, for some reason, people will interpret Psalm 110 and its various citations in the New Testament as some future reference only. Certainly it has a lasting, but do you think that God sat Jesus at the right hand and just, Jesus is just waiting while everything founders, and then he's going to jump in at the end? That just doesn't mesh with what the scripture says on this. Now, I'm not telling you I can reconcile every failure the church has ever had in the last 2,000 years with the statement, but I can tell you slowly but surely, the church continues to grow. You say, well, look at America. I agree. Look at America. But try looking at China for a moment. He constantly, cyclically, brings bigger and better movements of his church throughout time. We've only been in a little portion of it. For me, just 35 measly little years. But he works with no limits on time. And so slowly but surely, he builds his church. He disciplines his church in one portion while blessing the other. Bringing growth to one portion while bringing a certain amount of chastisement to other. But in the end, in the big scheme, he continues to subdue the nations. More people on earth in various nations that didn't even know the word of God 20 years ago now claim the name of Christ. Members of those nations, those tribes, those tongues. Sitting at his right hand. What is Jesus' priority? That's what setting your mind on things above means. What is Jesus doing at the right hand of the Father? Well, several things. We call this the session of Christ, which is this kind of anomalous period between the time of his resurrection, the time of the, the recreation, a restoration of paradise, the new earth, the new heavens, what we call the eternal state. What he's doing is fivefold. These are five things that Jesus is doing at God's right hand right now to show how active he is, but then to draw another conclusion in a moment. First, he is being honored. Just his mere position as Philippians says he has a name above all other names. He's seated at the right hand of God. He's honored. He's receiving glory at the right hand of God the Father. That's the first thing he's doing. Secondly, he is resting from his mediatorial work. What do I mean? Well, the priests in the Old Testament had to stand daily to make sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. They never could sit down and rest because there always needed to be another sacrifice. But with Jesus, after making purification for our sins, Hebrews says he sat down at the right hand of the Father, demonstrating rest from his mediatorial role. So, he's honored, he's resting, and he's interceding for us. Scriptures also teaches us that God always lives, Christ lives, to make intercession for us. So he constantly intercedes for the ones for whom he's died. He intercedes for us even now at this moment. Honored, resting, interceding. He's also, according to Hebrews, upholding the universe by the word of his power. Not only did he create it as an agent of God, but he also upholds it by the word of his power. He's king over it all the universe. So he's very active, taking honor, resting from his mediatorial work, interceding for us, upholding the universe, and finally, he is subduing the nations, making them a footstool as God the Father for God the Son, by the name of Christ and the people of Christ, the head, and we being the body, bringing the nations to bring what number one is, honor and glory to God. The way he brings honor and glory to himself, um, besides just his intrinsic worth, is by drawing people to himself to acknowledge that he is Savior. That's, that's the basis for missions, to let the nations rejoice. He's subduing the nations. They're being made a footstool for him. 
through the expansion of his church. The church that he said in Matthew, I will build, Jesus speaking. How can we participate in this? Well, when you look at the five things Jesus is doing at his session at the right hand of God the Father, receiving honor, resting from his mediatorial work, interceding for us, upholding the universe, and subduing the nations, which one can we participate in? One and five. And we participate in one, honoring of him, by number five. By subduing or seeing the nations worship him. And you know where it starts? Right here. And then it goes out. Here to there and there. That is setting your mind on things above. Because that's where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of the Father, doing what? All this. Now, that takes on a whole new meaning for me. This is not an escapist verse any longer. This is not a verse of just pure conviction. It does both those things to some degree. I need to hear sometimes that what I see isn't all there is. And I need to also challenge myself as to why I'm pursuing what I'm pursuing. But in the end, what it's really about is not so much to change necessarily what particularly you are doing, but rather to see it in a whole new light and take inventory of it and see if you're doing for the, what you're doing for the right reasons. Christ is your life now. We'll return in a moment to this theme. But Christ is your life now. Not in the future when you get to heaven, but now. From the moment he saves you, from that time forward, all new priorities, all new perspective, all new ambitions. And every time you work opposed to those things, God, by his great loving grace, will let you know about that. And you'll have a rub or a tension in your life. This is why in Colossians 2.8, we're reminded to not be taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and what? Not according to Christ. That's why when we get to the third verse, it says, For you have died, your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So you have a new perspective that is based on Christ, where he is, seated at the right hand of the Father. You also then, from this new mindset, will have totally new ambitions. That's what it means when it says, seek the things that are above. We've set our minds on those things where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Now we seek the things as a result of our new mindset. We'll return to the theme. I believe it is the call, our call, to see Christ's dominion exercised on all the earth. And the main way this happens is by the simplicity of your one changed life. That spread to your family, that spread to your church, that spread to your community, and it's much more simple than any big macro plan I can give you. I'm under no illusion that we could build all the buildings, have a school, send missionaries, support missionaries. I'm under no illusion to think that will all work if we neglect the simplest of all transformations, which happens with you, the individual, turning your life over totally to Christ, who is your life. It's got to start there. Everything else is pie in the sky if I keep talking big and we're not down to the details because I think that most people come to Christ based on one individual in their life who has represented Jesus to them more than what they said. And if you think of how you came to Christ, either it was because a faithful parent raised you in the nurture and admission of the Lord or some individual, I almost assure you, walked the walk. You may have heard the message proclaimed somewhere, but you go back to that person who lived a life that was unto Christ. It was different. And that's what God used to change you, to transform you. So, in the simplest terms, whatever it is God has called you to do, I'm not telling you to do anything different. I'm just telling you to do it for Jesus instead. If God made you a janitor, clean for Christ. If he made you an engineer, design stuff and figure out how stuff won't work for Christ. 
You know what I'm saying? Analyze for Christ. If you're a salesperson, do it so that when someone sees you, they see something different in you. Christ. And don't tell me that will not change the world. I think the reason why we don't see the change is because Christians have so segmented their lives that they do not live out Christ, their life, in every aspect of it. They're maybe not sinful in it, but they're quiet about it. What they've done is they've taken their life and they've got it in portions. Christ is here. I've got my job here, my hobbies or my leisure life here. Uh, and they compartmentalize it. And when they're in these other spheres, I'll say they're at their job, they'll refer back to the fact that they're a Christian, uh, but only if it comes up and if it's convenient or not going to get them in trouble. You know, they'll mention it then. And, and oh, you are too. And then this, the secret sex starts in the workforce because other people, ooh, you're a believer too. And the segmented life does absolutely nothing for the advance of the gospel. Makes some secret enclaves in the halls of some company somewhere that's as secretive as the catacombs of Rome when you've got every right to tell everybody what you think and feel. Instead, we're supposed to have a sphere where God is sovereign over it all. Christ is the apex or the center of it in everything, my job, my life, my family, serve it. So very simply, if you're in your life right now and you're wondering, what am I doing that's setting my mind on things above or of eternal significance, ask the question, how is it bringing glory to Christ? Whatever it is. I've heard all sorts of Christians give all sorts of Christianized answers for why they pursue the things they pursue. Well, I'm working really hard to make a lot of money so I could pro promote Christ. And maybe you are. Maybe you're totally neglecting the simplest things in life. Maybe you're spending all sorts of time in some area that can be explained away with Christian words. But in your heart, you're still living to yourself. You're still justifying what you're doing. With, temporal, with terms that seem very spiritual. So I want to just encourage you that whatever it is you are called to do, make sure that your mind is set on things above and the purpose of what you're doing is set for a great, the greater good of what God has called us all to. I mean, if you are changing your baby's diaper, you're recognizing that this is not only a necessity, it's not a waste of time. And it has spiritual significance. How? It's all part of the little things we do to nurture and bring up our children to be people who seek those things that are above. It's a small part, but a necessary part of that picture. So take the most menial thing you do, and I promise you, you can see, if your mindset is right, how it is that it fits in to this greater picture of Christ's glory revealed on the earth. The most menial of tasks, times and things, you think, well, this doesn't have any spiritual significance. I don't think anything fits in that category. It doesn't have to. Now, maybe there are some things we've got to cut out. We've got to change. We've got to do differently. No doubt. But I'm not primarily here to just convict you about ways in which you've got to be less... Uh, less worldly, I'd rather convict you or have the Spirit of God convict you based on His Word to set our minds on things above and see how that changes our actions. Finally, you have a new future in light of all this. Verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with Him in glory. Do you know that eternal life that Jesus promised uh, started when? It didn't start, it doesn't still, we're not waiting for it to start. Eternal life starts the moment God converts you, regenerates you. That's when your new eternal life starts. That's the abundant life, the being the abundant life that God provides and promises. So eternity with Christ is not meant to imply that our new future is something we just can't wait for. But no, our new future begins now and is lived day by day unto Christ. In fact, the eternal state, there's not a lot said about that. And I'm not even wild about the term, the eternal state. It sounds like we're going to go somewhere and park, right? The eternal state. You just park there. 
I think that's totally unbiblical. The eternal state is a continuum of the present state in glorified form. In other words, there's really not a dichotomy in the mind of God about eternity. It's all one progression forever. And there's this epoch of time in which we're living uh, in our unglorified state where the glory of God is being had as he's transforming us, washing up us vessels. But eventually he's going to give us our utterly new clothes and we're going to continue on with Christ with even greater capacity to bring glory to God because we've recognized what he's done in redemption fully and we'll do it forever. And we'll live on an earth like this, or this earth restored, or a new one, new one created with bodies. We're not disembodied spirits for eternity. You'll work because it's glor- glorious to God to work. We just won't need pastors and lawyers. I don't know, what, I'm gonna, what am I going to do? Tomato garden for the eternity. The point is, it's more about the existence, it's more like our existence today than you may think. The point is, it's in, glorif- in glory without the capacity to sin any longer, and a capacity to purely worship God in all of our life, and all people will. That's our new future that starts even now. And I only submit to you that why not start seeing that happen now by the expansion of Christ's church, as he is seated at the right hand, giving us the ability to do so. I say this because I look forward to the day that when Christ at his appearing comes, we won't be like that employee who gets caught by his employer doing something he shouldn't be doing and kind of scurries around a cover but rather in all of our brokenness no doubt when christ comes back we will not be in shock and shame but rather in glorious appreciation for his coming lord jesus come quickly big difference in approach and perspective and it all has to do with our new life in christ we will be ready when he comes because we are new people with a new perspective with new ambitions and a new future let's live like it let's pray